0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, thank you, Pastor Murray, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. And uh, welcome to our guests. As uh, Pastor Murray mentioned this is our first of a series of public Bible studies that we'll do once a month the the fourth Sabbath of each month and uh, today's topic is the festival of Easter and basically what I want to do today is show that Easter notwithstanding the Christian community's belief it's not a Christian it's not a Christian holiday and what I want to do is make the case against Easter but not against Christians so in, in this study I'm not questioning the sincerity of Christians who observe Easter all I'm doing is making a case against Easter and I'm going to make that case using nothing except the Bible and history and what I quote everybody here can confirm what I'm saying even while I'm speaking if you have a smartphone you can go on Google and you can verify is what I'm saying true I'm going to speak and show, uh, basically structure it in four ways, uh, or four sections. I'm going to speak about, uh, look at time before Christ's incarnation. Then I want to study the first century. Then the second to the fourth century. And then we'll look at the future. Before I start, I'd like to pose three questions for you to consider. They're rhetorical questions. Number one, why do some Christians celebrate Easter while others celebrate Passover? Number two, what do chocolate eggs and chocolate bunnies have to do with Jesus Christ? And number three, if Easter is always celebrated on a Sunday, and Passover can be celebrated any day of the week, why do Passover and Easter never coincide? Even though Passover might be celebrated on a Sunday, Why is that Sunday never the same Sunday as Easter? So I'll answer these questions as we go along. But first, let's look at Wikipedia. Regarding the Easter sunrise service, this is what it says. Many churches in the American South still hold traditional sunrise services in cemeteries as a sign of recognition that Jesus no longer lay in the tomb on Easter morning. The service starts early in the morning and is timed so that the attendants can see the sun rise while the service is going. The most famous sunrise service is in, in the United States is probably that of the Salem congregation in what is now Winston-Salem, North Carolina, held annually since 1772. So America became a nation in 1776. So before America was even a nation, this sunrise service has been held consistently since 1772. More than 6,000 worshipers gather before dawn in front of the church to proclaim the resurrection. So you can imagine what that experience must be like, to be with 6,000 believers, to have the sunrise on Easter morning, and to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. So again, we're not questioning the sincerity, but we are questioning the practice. Here's what Wikipedia has to say about Easter, the origin of Easter. It comes from a word, Yoster, and if you were to look this up, it's spelled E-O-S-T-R-E, Yoster, or Ostara, O-S-T-A-R-A. Yoster is from Old English, Sorry. Uh, yes, and Ostara is from the West Saxon, high Old High German, is a goddess in Germanic paganism, who by way of the Germanic month bearing her name, Yostermona, or Easter month, is the namesake of the festival of Easter. Yoster derives from Pro-Ger- Proto-Germanic, Ostro a root which means to shine so Yoster means to shine and therefore closely related to the reconstructed name of the dawn goddess which would account for the Greek Yost, the Roman Aurora, the Indian Ushas, and the modern English term Easter all a direct continuation of the Old English Yoster Easter month has a name which is now translated the Paschal month or the Passover month and which was once called after a goddess of theirs named Yoster, in whose honor feasts were celebrated in that month. Now they designate that the paschal season by her name, calling the joys of the new rite by the time-honored name of the old observance. And what I'll show you when we talk about the second to the fourth century is that uh, Constantine, who legalized Christianity, was all about syncretism. He wanted his empire to all agree And so we're going to mix the Christian faith With the pagan faith And get everybody doing things together So whether you're worshipping A goddess on Sunday morning Or you're worshipping Christ on Sunday morning As long as we're all doing it together That's what's good for Constantine I'll come back to that Continuing with uh, Wikipedia Yoster, Therefore to have been the divinity Of the radiant dawn Of upspringing light a spectacle that brings joy and blessing whose meaning could easily be adapted by the resurrection day of the Christians God so it just fit very easily to say we're celebrating this pagan goddess who is all about the dawn the rising of the Sun and the triumph of the Sun but it's just as easy to adapt it to the Christian faith here also heathen notions seem to have grafted themselves on the great Christian festivals and then it goes on to speak about Ishtar it's actually I-S-H-T-A-R pronounced Eastar and shows that again this is tied to the East Semitic, Akkadian, Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility, love, war and sex and that's why we have Easter bunnies and eggs this is coming from the pagan ritual worship of this god of fertility and love Wikipedia goes on to show that the Greek god Aphrodite the Aramean god, Astarte, and the Egyptian god, Isis, are all the same goddess. So ideas just float to different geographies, and they have different names. But the one that floated into the English language is Yoster. Now most people will say Easter is in the Bible. If you can turn to Acts 12 and verse 4, we'll see the first, the only reference of Easter in the Bible. Acts 12 and the book of Acts was written by Luke and it's mostly about the travels of Paul Luke was a companion to the Apostle Paul and it says here in Acts 12 verse 4 and when he had apprehended him he put him in prison and delivered him to four Quartinians of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people so people will see the reference here to Easter and believe that Easter is in the Bible Easter became a Christian holiday in 325 AD when Constantine the Roman Empire at the first ecumenical council at Nicaea said this at this meeting the question concerning the most holy day of Easter the question concerning the most holy day of Easter was discussed and it was resolved by the United judgment of all present that this feast ought to be kept by all and in every place on one on the same day Easter Sunday so 325 AD the Council of Nicaea the Roman Empire made it uh, the Roman Emperor made a decree that everybody in the Roman Empire would celebrate Easter on the same day so this is the case for Easter that it's in the Bible Acts 12:4, and it became a legitimate Christian holiday AD 325 let me first deal with it's in the Bible if you have uh, the Bible on your phone and you can double click on the word Easter it'll show you the Greek word which is Pascha which is Passover so this is a bad translation people were celebrating Easter they just wrote translated it Easter it should be Passover I'll come back to that and I'll also deal with this ruling by Constantine to make Easter the official holiday to celebrate Christ's resurrection. But first, let's look at some scriptures. Go to Ezekiel 8. We're going to now look at before Christ's incarnation, before Christ came to earth. Let's pick up some scriptures to put Easter in context. So we saw through Wikipedia that there was Isis, there was Astarte, Yoster all these different um, Ashtoreth all these different goddesses which are basically the same goddess just with different names as we go to different geographies so these ideas they live they live on from one generation to the next from one geography to the next and here in Ezekiel 8 we're looking at the children of Israel and they had this problem this weakness that when they moved into the promised land Instead of clearing the land of pagan worship and teaching people the true God, they adopted pagan worship. And we see that here in Ezekiel 8, beginning in verse 13. He said also unto me, turn you yet again, and you shall see greater abominations that they do. God is furious with Israel. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house. So he, so he's taken to the Lord's house at the door of the gate, which was toward the north. The north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. So Tammuz is a false god. In fact, he is the cohort to Yostur. So Tammuz and Yostur, to the whole fertility goddess uh, and god and goddess. So they're weeping for Tammuz. Verse fifteen. Then said he unto me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn you yet again, and you shall see greater abominations than these. What is the greater abomination? And he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. So they're now right in the temple, in the inner court. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men. With their backs... Toward the temple of the Lord. So these are leaders in Israel. These are the priests in Israel. Turning their back to the temple of the Lord. Why? And their faces toward the east. So they're in the temple of the Lord with their faces toward the east. Why? And they worship the sun toward the east. So the only reason to face east when you're worshiping the the, the sun. Is because the sun rises in the east. Rises in the east, sets in the west. So this is a sunrise, this is an Easter sunrise service that the very nation of Israel, the very priests of Israel were adopting this pagan worship and bringing it into the temple of God. So this is not new. And we should not be surprised if Christians take pagan worship and bring it into the house of God. This is what we do as mankind. We syncretize. We do not keep religion pure. And so God goes on to tell Ezekiel how he will destroy Israel for this abomination. Let's go now to Genesis 1. In 325 AD, Constantine, the Roman Empire emperor, pronounced or declared that Easter Sunday would be the holy day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question I would ask is, as powerful as he was he was basically the world ruler does he have the authority to create holy time is that something that he can do let's look at Genesis one to see how holy time was created how and when Genesis one of course is the creation account and beginning in verse 14 It says this, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. So the purpose, one of the purpose of these lights in the heaven is to separate night and day. That's one of the purposes. But there's another purpose and let them be for signs. So the sun and the moon are also for signs, but there's another purpose and for seasons and another purpose and for days and years I want to drill down on the purpose that says and for seasons when we hear the word seasons we think of spring summer fall winter that's not what this word means the Hebrew word is the word Moadim Moadim and it means appointments so God created the sun and the moon for divine appointments it says here Moadim properly is an appointment it is a fixed time specifically a festival so what this is saying is God created the sun and the moon for the purpose of festivals these are divine appointments that God would have with his worshipers and they were they were created before man was created Because they were created for man, for man to have a relationship with God. And it's not the purpose of the study here, but just very quickly, we know that God created mankind, and when he created mankind, he was the God for all mankind. And that's the case up until Genesis 12. At Genesis 12, the Bible takes a sharp right turn, and God is no longer the God of mankind. He becomes the God of Abraham. Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had a son called Israel, or Jacob, who became Israel. And God made a covenant with Abraham, which was everlasting. And he said that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. That covenant was handed down to Israel, who then had 12 sons. Those sons became 12 tribes. And so what the Bible shows us is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through these 12 tribes. The covenant with Abraham is an everlasting covenant. He then made a covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. We refer to that as the Old Covenant. That covenant, Israel failed in the agreement. It was an agreement between God and Israel. They failed. Because of their failure, God made a new covenant. And that new covenant came through Jesus Christ and it was ratified with his shed blood. But that covenant was not with all mankind, God ceased. To be the God of all mankind in Genesis 12. And he became exclusively the God of, it, of, of Abraham. And now we say the God of Israel. But he is the God of all mankind because all mankind is invited to come into this Abrahamic covenant through Jesus Christ. So you can do this study on your own, but you can see in Genesis thir- uh, Jer- Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, the new covenant is not with everybody the new covenant is with Israel God said to Israel I will the, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant the old covenant the law was written on stone the new covenant it's written in their heart we'll see later the rest of mankind the Gentiles the other nations come into a relationship with God through Israel so God creates here in Genesis 1 14 the Sun and the moon in order to mark holy time that by looking at the Sun and the moon we would figure out when holy time is and we have a divine appointment with God through this holy time now let's look at Leviticus 23 because Leviticus 23 is showing Israel so the Covenant came down to Israel the nation of Israel And Leviticus, the the book of Leviticus, is all about how to have a relationship with God. So God now dwells with Israel, and he shows them in Leviticus, here's how to have a relationship with me. And in Leviticus 23, he says this beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the Mo'adim of The Lord. So in Genesis, he creates the sun and the moon. Why? So that they could know, the mankind could know the Mo'adim. Now in Leviticus 23, as he begins his relationship with Israel, he says to Moses, speak to Israel concerning my Mo'adim, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Only God can declare something holy. So on these special days at these special times, this is holy time. Moses, you need to tell the children of Israel to look at the sun, look at the moon, and figure out when my holy appointments are. Even these are my feasts. He doesn't say, even these are the feasts of the Jews. These are the feasts of Israel. These are my feasts. These are my divine appointments. Don't be late. Don't miss them. When the sun and the moon have a certain configuration, you need to be there. I have an appointment with you. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day, not Sunday, it it was in Constantine's uh, favor to get everybody to worship on Sunday. Because there's no way he could get the pagans to give up their Sunday worship. So let's just mix paganism and Christianity together. As long as I have uniformity, I have control over the kingdom, over my empire. But God says the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. So we count seven days, and because of the sun, we know the seventh day, and we know this is a a mo'adim. This is a divine appointment that God has set. We are commanded to congregate. It's a holy convocation, a holy coming together. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the Mo'adim of the Lord. Even holy convocations which you shall proclaim in their Mo'adim. Now, verse 5. In the fourteenth day of the month, at even, is the Lord's Passover. So after the weekly Sabbath, the very first order of business is the Passover. Nothing here about Easter. The Passover is a holy appointment and we're going to see later it's forever and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread so you can read the rest of this chapter and it covers seven holy days seven festivals seven Mo'adim the children of Israel did not fully understand why they needed to observe these days we as Christians in Christ understand the symbolic significance of these days God's plan is reflected in his Mo'adim. It begins with the Passover. The Passover, this lamb shed its blood. The lamb is symbolic of Christ. And the whole plan of God begins with Christ. As a result of that, we move into the days of unleavened bread. Seven days when no leaven should be eaten. Leaven symbolizing sin. The days of unleavened bread symbolizing the new converts' uh, commitment to drive sin out of our lives fifty days later is pentecost symbolizing the giving of the holy spirit and the founding of the church now we're in the church Age. the next holy day comes in the fall we have spring holy days or spring mo'adim we have fall mo'adim the spring and this is very I don't, want to, I don't want to get too much into this. If you have questions, but each of these holy days represent the plan of God. The spring representing the first fruits. God is not trying to save everybody now. So we're not out there trying to get everybody in here. No. Whoever comes is by God's will. We preach the truth, and if people accept it, wonderful. God is working with them. If they don't accept it, they're not first fruits. It doesn't mean they're lost And we're going to cover this in May Uh, Pastor Ramakan will be here It doesn't mean they're going to burn in hell It just means they're in the fall harvest There's a spring harvest and a fall harvest But I'll leave that So the four holy days, that you'll read this They symbolize the fall harvest Exodus 12 Actually, I'll come back to Exodus 12 Let's now look quickly at the first century So fast forward I want to just establish here That Passover is part of God's Mo'adim It's holy time John 1, let's go to John 1. John 1, and we're just going to pick up one verse, and it's verse 29. John 1, I'm just establishing now in the first century the legitimacy of the Passover, not Easter. John 1, verse 29. The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him this is John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching him and he says behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world what he's saying is behold the Passover the the ancient Israelites sacrificed the Lamb and God passed over them he destroyed the firstborn of Israel uh, of Egypt but not of Israel and here John is saying here's the true Lamb of God 1 let's now go to Luke 22 Luke 22 and beginning in verse 7 again are we looking do we see Easter in the Bible or do we see the Passover God's Mo'Adim, one of the Moad verse 7 Luke 22 then came the day of unleavened bread. Of course, Jesus was a Jew. He was sent to the Jews. Jesus didn't come and preach to Gentiles. The new covenant was for Israel. So Christ came and he preached to Israel. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Nothing to do with Easter. The Passover must be killed. And he said to Peter and John, saying... Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. So Christ is very specific. We are going to keep the Passover. Go and prepare it. And he took bread, dropping down to verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. I am the Passover. You do this in remembrance of me likewise also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new testament or the new covenant in my blood and again this new covenant is with Israel there's is no covenant with the Gentiles the Gentiles have to come into the Israelite covenant this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you so Christ kept the Passover and now he's showing the Christian Passover it's the same date it's the 14th of the first month same date that we saw in Leviticus 23 but now he's introducing different symbols and he's saying now you're going to keep the Passover to remember me doesn't say anything about Easter doesn't say anything about his resurrection he's giving them instructions on how to keep the Passover in the new way in the new covenant let's go back to John this time John 19 This is the same day, the the 14th day of the first month. So the month means moons. So we basically have 12 moons or 13 moons in a year. And we count the moons. And when we get to the first moon, that's the month. So we're looking at the first moon. Once we're in the first moon, we switch to the sun. And then we start counting days using the sun to get to the 14th day. So God created the moon and the sun so that we would know holy time. So we look for the first moon, which is just, we're just coming up to it now. And then once we get the first moon, we switch to the sun, and we start counting 14 days to get to the 14th day of the first month. That's this day here, John 19, verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, so the day before the Sabbath is always the preparation day, and Deacon Jan is going to cover in his sermon, I'm not sure of the details, but he's going to cover when did Christ die and how long was he in the grave because according to Christian tradition Christ died on Good Friday and he rose on Easter Sunday that's not three days and three nights and they get that because they know he died on the preparation day the day before the Sabbath but if we read here carefully the Jews therefore because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day For that Sabbath day was a high day. So again, if we go back to Leviticus 23, what we saw is the 14th day of the first month is the Passover, and the 15th day is the first day of unleavened bread. And that day is a high day. So just according to the the Mo'adin, God has these holy times, and Christ was sacrificed precisely on the day of Passover. Just before... the the first day of unleavened bread. And that's what John 19 is showing, that Christ is our Passover and he was sacrificed on the Passover. For that Sabbath day was a high day. They besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So they didn't want them hanging up there and going into the Sabbath day and then they have to take them down on the Sabbath day. So let's break their legs so that they die on the preparation day. We can clean that up and then we can observe the Sabbath. And uh, we're not doing anything wrong by having to work on the Sabbath. Let's now go to Acts. We're still in the first century. Now we're after Christ has died. So Christ has died. Now what do the Christians do? Do they keep Easter? Do they celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday? Or do they continue to keep the Passover and the other holy days of God? Let's just do a quick survey beginning in Acts 2. Acts 2, if you're not familiar, is the day of Pentecost. And all Christians will agree, this is the founding of the church. So the day of Pentecost is when the church was founded, Acts 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost, notice this, was fully come. What does that mean, when the day of Pentecost was fully come? Again, if we go back to Leviticus 23, we see that Pentecost must be calculated. You need the sun to calculate Pentecost. Because you have to keep Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. And you have to find the Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Because that's the wave sheaf offering. And that actually represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from that wave sheaf offering, you then count 50 days to get to Pentecost. It is impossible to calculate Pentecost if you are not observing Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. So the fact that the whole church came together on Pentecost means they were counting 50 days. They were keeping Passover, days of unleavened bread, and now they're they're in the count. And so when it's fully come, it means that on the 50th day, they were all with one accord in one place. There was nobody saying, you know, I'm not into this holy day thing. I'm not into this holy... They were all in one accord, counting. Look at Acts 20. So just back to that uh, Acts 2, if, if you were not present or I was not present during that Moad, that divine appointment, when God gave his Holy Spirit to the church, we would not be a part of the church. We'd be at home saying, "Ah, oh, I'm not into the holy days. But because the church understood to count 50 and be together in one accord, it was a divine appointment. Then God sent his Holy Spirit. Acts 20, verse 6. Notice this. Again, it's Luke recording the travel journey and he's the companion to Paul and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So the other apostles are preaching to the Jews because Christ came for Israel and then the northern nation of Israel. They were they were scattered, but the southern nation of Judah remained. And so only the Jews really remained of Israel, the house of Israel and the apostles were preaching to the Jews But Paul came to preach to the Gentiles and to bring the Gentiles into the Jewish or the Israelite covenant. And this is very important. I'm going to come back to this. It's really, really important that the covenant is not for the Gentiles. And Gentiles just means other nations. The covenant is with Abraham and it is with Israel through Abraham. And the other nations are invited to come into the covenant of Israel. Paul is going to these nations to preach the gospel. And they're accepting the gospel. But they're coming into the covenant of Israel. Now, verse 6 in Acts 20. And we sailed away from Philippi. So this has nothing to do with Jerusalem. This has nothing to do with Jews. This is Paul going to the Gentiles. And now he's leaving Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Which means he was in Philippi. A Gentile Macedonian nation. With the Philippians. Observing the days of unleavened bread. And after these Gentiles. Finished observing the days of unleavened bread with Paul. He sailed away. And came unto them to trust five days. And we, we abode there seven days. Drop down to verse 16. For Paul. The apostle to the Gentiles. Had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia for he hurried if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost so they're in the count now they finished observing the days of unleavened bread and they're now in the count counting 50 and he's trying to figure out according to the divine appointments of the Moadim he's looking at the the, the moon we were in the first month now he's looking at the Sun and he's counting 50 and he's hurrying to get to Jerusalem to be there in time for the divine appointment of Pentecost. So so can you tell me now that he did not observe these holy days? That God outlined in Leviticus 23 to say, these are my divine appointments. And Paul is a faithful minister in the first century to the Gentiles. So he was in Philippi, then he was going through Ephesus, but he's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Look at 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians So Corinth is a completely I shouldn't say completely that's incorrect but it's a it's a gentile city it's under the Roman empire and it's a mix it's a commercial center it has uh, mostly romans it has greeks it has jews And it has everybody else who's traveling and going through Corinth. And Paul is now ministering to the brethren in Corinth. And he says this in verse 5. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. So clearly, the Corinthians are observing the days of unleavened bread. And he's instructing them now on a spiritual level. So he's taking the, the symbolism of the physical observance of unleavened bread. And he's applying it spiritually. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump so get rid of sin in your life that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened so the brethren had de-leavened their homes they're now coming to the service and it would be like we're sitting here uh, at the service during the days of unleavened bread and we've de-leavened our homes and I would say to you now okay great job that you physically de-leavened your home now get to work spiritually and become a new lump that's what he's saying so The the Gentile brethren in Corinth are observing the Mo'adim of God And observing the days of unleavened bread Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump As you are physically unleavened For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us So clearly they have kept the Passover They are now keeping the days of unleavened bread and he's telling them the same way that you're physically deleavened, get spiritually unleavened. The same thing that you've observed the Passover, remember, Christ is our Passover and He has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, notice this in verse 8, he's speaking to a mostly Gentile audience. Christ is dead. This is this is after Christ's death. And he's saying to them, Therefore, because Christ is our Passover, Let us keep the Mo'adim. Let us observe this divine appointment. This is holy time. God set it. And now it's holy time. Let us keep this holy time. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. And Pastor Murray gave us a great sermon on this, the the leaven of malice and wickedness. But let's keep this Mo'adim, this Mo'ad, With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's teaching what they're doing physically. They've deleavened their homes. They're Gentiles. They've come into the covenant of Israel. And now they are observing the holy days of Israel. Of God, I should say. And he's saying the same way that you have deleavened your homes, deleaven your lives. And the same way that you have unleavened bread in your diet... Have unleavened bread in your lives. Let us keep the feast. Keep it. Look, uh, fast forward to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And again, after this we'll have time for questions and answers. So if you have questions, please jot them down so that we can talk afterward. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, again, he's speaking to Gentiles. And he says to them, be you followers of me even as I also am of Christ I'm a Christian I'm doing what Christ did and as you see me doing what Christ did you do what I'm doing I'm I'm right here in front of you you see my lifestyle it's based on what Christ did so as you see me do you do verse 2 now I praise you brethren that you remember me in all things and you keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you Now he's going to share with us one of these ordinances. Drop down to verse 23. And let's see, is he talking about Easter? Or is he talking about Passover? Verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So I'm giving you what God gave me. That the Lord Jesus, the same night, the 14th day of the first month, that same night... In which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he had this Passover service with his disciples when he had given thanks he broke the bread and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me after the same manner also he took the cup and when he had supped, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this and as often as you drink it Again, this this is a Mo'adim, so every year you're going to watch the sun, you're going to watch the moon, and as often as you keep this divine appointment, you are remembering me. So the Passover is a divine appointment that enables us to remember Christ until he returns. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. And this is not saying, uh, have this service as often as you like. It's just saying, when you have this service, every time you have it, you're showing the Lord's resurrection? Sunrise service so that we can celebrate His resurrection? It doesn't say that. It's showing His death. And for Christians to ignore this incredible sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, they are missing the divine love that God has for us. So yes, it's uncomfortable for us to think about the sacrifice, the suffering of Christ but Christ commands us to do that because there's an, an understanding an inc- a growing understanding that we will have over time of how deeply God loves us that he would sacrifice his son or Christ would sacrifice himself for us so we need to, we need to show the Lord's death nothing about his resurrection here show the Lord's death until he comes so we have a choice we can gather in the evening And show his death. Or we can gather in the morning. Facing east. And celebrate the sunrise. And there's nothing here about gathering in the morning. For a sunrise service. It's to gather in the evening. To celebrate his death. And then it goes on just to say that. If they do this unworthily. Then they are. They are. Bringing damnation on themselves. But verse 28 let a man examine himself and then let him take the Passover. So, you Corinthians, you Gentiles, examine yourselves and then observe the Passover. So, clearly, in the first century, the Passover was observed. And then, just quickly, chapter 16 of the same book, 1 Corinthians 16. and verse 8 but I will wait at Ephesus a Gentile a Gentile city I'll wait at Ephesus until Pentecost so he's going to observe he's counting the 50 and he's going to observe this feast of Pentecost with the Gentile, the the, the Ephesians and then last uh, verse we'll look at for the first century is Acts 27 Acts 27 and verse 9 Where it says, now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. So in Acts 27 verse 9, it's speaking of the fast, which is the day of atonement, which is one of the Mo'adim, which is outlined in Leviticus 23. So Passover, days of unleavened bread, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, the last great day. All of these are a package that God appointed when he created the sun and the moon. And said, by the sun and the moon, you will know these days. So, these Christians are clearly, in the first century, observing the Mo'adim of God. Now, let's look at the second, third, and fourth century. So, the 100s, the 200s, the 300s. This is really the defining moment for Christianity. This is where suddenly, so very clearly in the first century, so the the last apostle to die was the apostle John. He died around 100 AD. So from Christ until the death of John, it's obvious that Christians, whether Gentile or Jew, are observing the Mo'adim of God. Something occurs after John's death. So after the final apostle is dead In fact I shouldn't say after Because it was occurring the whole time The the apostles were fighting against these false teachers The whole time they were alive Finally in 100 AD The last apostle dies And now we move into the second century The third and the fourth There is a dispute That occurs In the second century and it's called the Quarto Deciman Dispute and it was a raging dispute it, it threatened to split the empire and that's how it got the attention of the popes and the emperor Constantine in the 4th century Quarto Deciman means 14 so those of us here who observe the Passover we would be referred to as Quarto Decimans we are 14ers and it was a derogatory term. It's a dismissive term, the Fourteeners. Okay. So this quarto deciman controversy took place in the second century. And Wikipedia says this. It is from Leviticus 23. And it means the 14th. And it refers to the custom of some early Christians celebrating Passover beginning with the eve of the 14th of Nisan, the 14th of the first month so these early Christians were looking at the sun and the moon and they were keeping a divine appointment on the 14th day of the first month and they were holding on to this even though the rest of the Christian world was observing Easter and so they were called quarto decimans. beginning on the eve of the 14th of Nisan which at dusk is biblically the Lord's Supper. The Quarto controversy arose because Christians in the Roman province of Asia, this is really important, Christians in the Roman province of Asia celebrated Passover on the 14th day of the first month, while the churches in the rest of the world observed the practice of celebrating Easter on the following Sunday so you have churches in Asia the province of Asia who are sticking to their guns and they're saying we will not give up Passover it's on the 14th day of the first month yet all of the churches in the rest of the world are observing Easter why is this why is this the case why only in Asia do we have this holdout The difference was turned into an ecclesiastical controversy when the bishops held uh, councils and condemned the Asian practice. So the whole church agreed that the churches in Asia were to be condemned and to be excommunicated and pushed out of the church. Why is it significant that Asians held out? Let's go to Acts 19. Notice this in Acts 19 and verse 10. So Asia, the the churches in Asia would include Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, Colossus, all of the churches that we read about in Acts, most of them are in Asia, the the Roman province of Asia. And Acts 19 verse 10 says, And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they, everybody, that dwelt in Asia... Heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the preaching was was it covered all Asia and everybody in Asia heard the gospel. Fast forward a couple of hundred years, and the churches in Asia are saying, We will not leave the Passover. We are keeping the Passover. But by this time Christianity had become the religion of the Empire. And whether you liked it or not, you were forced to be a Christian. And in fact, initially, if you were a Christian, you'd be put to death, you'd be tortured. By this time, if you were a Christian, you could, be, could become very wealthy. If you could get in and belong and, and run a church, you could become very wealthy. So the moment Christianity becomes an official religion, you get everybody and their uncle becoming a Christian. Prior to that, only the people who were convicted would become Christians. And they'd be so convicted, they'd be willing to be put to death. And they would not let go of their conviction. So now the rest of the world has become Christian but the Asian world is holding out and saying we are keeping the Passover. Notice now in so when the the Christ, Christianity became the official religion you had uh, overseers of every city and they would come together and have these councils. And as I mentioned everybody and their uncle is now becoming Christian. And you have some very ambitious men who are now becoming Christians. And who are making their way up uh, through politics as well as through the church. And they're taking over leadership positions in the church. And now they're beginning to argue over who's the greatest. And if you were a bishop, so Antioch, Alexandria, uh, Ephesus, Rome, and I think there's one other city. These were the major Christian centers, the major cities. So these five bishops began to argue with each other about who was greatest. And if you were just a bishop of a small city, who cares about you? Eventually, because Rome was the center of the Roman Empire, the bishop of Rome became the most important, and he became the pope. So the church didn't begin with a pope. It's this arguing over who's greatest that created the position of pope. Now we have in 155 AD, Pope Anicetus is forcing everybody to keep Easter, to, to celebrate Easter. The churches in Asia resisted, and a bishop named Polycarp, who was the bishop in Smyrna, is now challenging, or I should, I should say, Anicetus is challenging Polycarp. Polycarp travels to Rome to discuss with Anicetus why it's important that they keep the Passover. The Catholic Encyclopedia says this The visit of St. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, so Polycarp uh, was a disciple of John, John ordained him. A bishop in Smyrna. So he learned directly from John, and John was the apostle uh, or the disciple of Christ. So St. Polycarp visited Anicetus, the pope in Rome, and it's described by St. Irenaeus in a letter to Pope Victor, written under the following circumstances The Asiatic Christians differed from the rest of the church in their manner of observing, it says Easter here, but it was Passover. While the other churches kept the feast on a Sunday, the Asiatics celebrated it on the 14th of Nisan, the first month, whatever day of the week this might fall in. Pope Victor tried to establish uniformity, so we're we're just fast forwarding, so Pope Victor comes in 193 AD, Polycarp was on 155 AD, the Pope then was Anicetus. So Polycarp visited Anicetus to say, we're not giving up Passover. Now we're dealing with Victor later, and Eusebius, the church historian, is referring back to the meeting that Polycarp had with Anicetus. Pope Victor tried to establish uniformity, so that's what they want in the empire, whether you're a pagan or a Christian, or a, let's just all do the same thing. And when the Asiatic churches refused to comply, he excommunicated them. Saint Irenaeus remonstrated with, it, with him in a letter, part of which is preserved by Eusebius, in which he contrasted the moderation displayed by Pope Anicetus to Polycarp compared to Victor. So, so, what's happening here is they're saying, look, Anicetus tolerated Polycarp and the Asian churches. He didn't excommunicate them. And he's trying to say to Victor, try to be like Anicetus and just tolerate. But Victor wouldn't have it. Okay, here's the letter that was written by Polycrates so Polycarp was on 155 he challenged Anicetus. Polycrates is now standing up for the Asian churches and he's challenging Pope Victor and he says this we and he's the bishop in Ephesus we observe the genuine day we observe the genuine day neither adding to it nor taking from it for in Asia great lights have fallen asleep which shall rise again in the day of the Lord's appearing in which he will come with the glory from heaven and will raise up all the Saints Philip one of the twelve apostles who sleeps in Hierapolis, and his two aged virgin daughters his other daughter also who having lived with the influence of the Holy Spirit now likewise rests in Ephesus moreover John who rested on the bosom of the Lord who was also a priest And bore the sacerdotal plate, both a martyr and a teacher. He is buried in Ephesus. Also, Polycarp of Smyrna, both bishop and martyr, uh, sleeps in Smyrna. Why should I? And he goes on to mention some of these other men, and he says, all these shall rise from the dead. All these observed the fourteenth day of of the Passover according to the gospel. He doesn't say according to the Torah. These are Christians and they're saying we observe all of these observed in Asia, the Passover, according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. Moreover, I, Polycrates, who am the least of you, according to the tradition of my relatives, some of whom I have followed, for seven of my relatives were bishops and I am the eighth. And my relatives always observed the day when the people of the Jews threw away the leaven. I, therefore, brethren, am now 65 years in the Lord. So he's been 65 years in the faith. And he says this. Who having confirmed with the brethren throughout the world. So he's met with all the brethren in the different cities. And having studied the whole of the sacred scriptures. So he's, he's studied the Bible every, every chapter, every, every verse. I am not alarmed at those things which I am threatened to intimidate me. So he's saying to the Pope, you can threaten me with whatever you want. I'm not giving up the Passover. I've been at this for 65 years. I'm not going to, just because you threaten me. And remember, some vicious people were getting into the church. So Pope Victor is a very ambitious man. Just because you hear Pope, don't think righteous. The, the, The church is wide open now. Everybody and their brother is a Christian. I am not alarmed at those things with which I am threatened to intimidate me for they who are greater than I have said we ought to obey God rather than men I could also mention the bishops that were present whom you requested me to summon and whom I did call whose names would present a great number but who seeing my slender body consented to my epistle well knowing that I did wear my gray hairs for nothing but that I did at all times regulate my life in the Lord Jesus so that was Polycarp standing up to Pope Victor who was a vicious man and he excommunicated all the, all the churches in Asia, and he said, you're no longer in the church. So at this time now, we come to 325 A.D., when Easter is made the official Christian holiday. And what happens is the true church goes underground, because now it's illegal to keep Passover. And I refer to this a bit at the beginning. I want to read the rest of the... This is the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council at Nicaea. When they had two issues that they had to resolve. And the, the date 325 is very important because in 324, the kingdom was split into East and West. Constantine had the West, and his brother in law, Licinius, had the East. And they didn't like each other very much. In 324, Constantine finally defeated Licinius and he managed to unite the whole kingdom. So now he has the whole kingdom. And he sees that Christianity is very convenient. Because unlike all the other religions, anybody can be a Christian. You don't have to be born a Christian. It's not uh, located in a specific geography. It's wide open. So his whole empire could become Christian. So he makes Christianity the official religion. But he syncretizes. He mixes it with paganism. He mixes it, as long as everybody's uniform. So 325 A.D. he calls a council at Nicaea because two things, there's two things that threaten to split his kingdom, his empire. One is the nature of God, and there was a, a bishop, a presbyter called Arius, who was teaching that there was a time when Christ was not, and people were getting onto this uh, philosophical doctrine around the being of Christ, and others were resisting it, and that's when they established the Trinity and we're going to deal with the Trinity in June so every month we're going to deal with a common belief in the Christian world and show that it's not from the Bible the Trinity is one of these but 325 he establishes the Trinity the other controversy that threatened to split the empire was the observance of the Passover so some Christians were observing Easter, others were observing Passover and and I really please listen to this 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 is Constantine, the world ruler in 325 A.D calls all the bishops together and says, guys, we need to figure this out. I can't have some people doing this Passover thing and other people doing Easter and arguing about it. We need to be uniform. So he brings them all together. Here's his judgment. Please listen to this, because we're going to build on this. Constantine, August, meaning the great one, to the churches. So after the council, they've made their decision. He's now writing to all the churches. When the question arose concerning the most holy day of Easter, it was decreed by common consent to be expedient that this festival should be celebrated on the same day by all in every place. So remember at the beginning I asked you, why is it that if if Easter is fixed on a Sunday and Passover is kept any day, why do passover and Easter never coincide never never have never will passover and Easter will never come together why this is why because Constantine made this ruling listen to it it'll be celebrated on the same day by all in every place it seemed to everyone so everyone that was present it seemed a most unworthy thing that we should follow the custom of the Jews in celebration of this most holy solemnity who polluted wretches having stained their hands with a nefarious crime are justly blinded in their minds it is fit therefore that rejecting the practice of this people we should perpetuate to all future ages the celebration of this rite in a more legitimate order which we have kept from the first day of our Lord's passion even to the present times. And and bear in mind, this guy is no Christian. He's the head of the Christian church. But he said, I don't want to be baptized until the day of my death because I'm busy killing people and I'm busy torturing people. And I don't want to be baptized and then have to give account for those sins. So Constantine wasn't baptized until he died. But he's ruling the churches. And he's saying here, these Jews are filthy. They are polluted. We want nothing to do with them and that's why I was emphasizing earlier God's Covenant is with Israel the Jews are the only tribe left of Israel so it's with the Jews Christ himself said salvation is of the Jews and here the reason Easter is being established is not because we like Easter it's because we hate the Jews it is fit therefore that rejecting the practice of this people we should perpetuate to all future ages the celebration of this right that's why today in 2014 on April 20 Christians will be celebrating Easter and not Passover because Constantine and everybody present at the Council of Nicaea hated the Jews and so they're establishing that all future Christians will observe Easter and not Passover let us have nothing in common with the most hostile rabble of the Jews you don't, We hear about Council of Nicaea, we never hear this This is what was decided Let us have nothing in common with the, host, the most hostile rabble of the Jews We have received another method from the Savior A more lawful and proper course is open to our most holy religion In pursuing this course with the unanimous consent let us withdraw ourselves, my much honored brethren From that most odious fellowship As it is necessary that this fault should be so amended That we may have nothing in common With the usage of these parasites Which means murderers of parents And murderers of our Lord And so that order is most convenient Which is observed by all the churches of the West As well as those in the southern and northern parts of the world And so he goes on to say here that I pledge myself that this arrangement should meet your approbation that the custom which prevails with one consent in the city of Rome so he's challenging the Asiatics now and he's saying leave the Jewish practices alone these are horrible filthy people we want nothing to do with them so we're going to establish our celebration to have no fellowship with the perjury of the Jews and to sum up the whole in a few words It is agreeable to the common judgment of all that the most holy feast of Easter should be celebrated on one and the same day. So my question to you is, does this man, as powerful as he was, does he have the ability or the authority to declare holy time? Can he say what the Moadim is? And what he established was a system that they would calculate Easter. And that it would never, ever, ever be on the same day as Passover. John Chrysostom, who came a few years later, was one of the greatest church fathers. In fact, his last name was not Chrysostom. Chrysostom was a nickname, and it means golden mouth. He was such a powerful orator, such a great speaker, that people were enamored when he preached. Here's what he says The synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, the refuge of brigands and debaucherers, and the cavern of devils. It is a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and an abyss of perdition. I would say the same things about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue. I hate the Jews. This is the spirit of Easter. This is the spirit of Easter. And I want to put a very, very fine point on this. I want to put a very, very fine point on this. And there's a book that's just been published called The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany. And the point I want to make is this. The spirit of Easter is the spirit of Nazism. It's the same spirit. And I will declare that to anybody, and I dare anybody to challenge me. Easter was established... With a spirit of hatred toward the Jews. Something happened. This Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was all Gentiles. Yet when we look at Acts 15, the Council at Jerusalem was all Jews. Christianity was Jewish, it was an Israelite religion. And they were figuring out what do we do now that God has, oh, Paul came to Jerusalem and showed them that the Holy Spirit is in Gentiles. And so they had to say, what do we do? They have this council to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles? Because clearly God is working with them, and they've come into the covenant. A few hundred years later, these very same apostles, Jesus Christ himself, is not welcome to be in the church. Listen to this well researched book by Susanna Heskell, and she was in Toronto preaching, uh, not preaching, sorry, speaking to the University of Toronto. And she said she got access to archives that no one else had ever, ha- had ever accessed. And she was so patient, it took her years. And she said when she held these documents, she broke out in hives. She couldn't believe what she was reading. And she had this physical reaction where her body was covered in hives because these were the real, true Nazi documents. She said, this is a review of the book, By the uh, University of Bowling Green State. Susanna Heschel's superbly researched book, The Aryan Jesus, presents the reader with a new perspective on Christian anti Semitic actions under the Third Reich. In this work, Heschel introduces us to the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish influence on German church life. This is an institute that nobody heard about, and she just happened to trip over it, and then went and did some research in Germany. and said, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, and she just kept digging, kept digging, and finally got access to the archives of this institute. It opened its doors in Eisenach on May 6, 1939, under the academic direction of Walter Grundmann. Walter Grundmann would be like the... the um, Uh, John Chrysostom of his day everybody in Germany knew this man studied his work, worked from his commentaries and he led this institute at the inaugural speech, Grundmann, a professor of New Testament at the University of Jena, spoke of the need to rid Protestantism of its connections to Judaism as Martin Luther had rid Protestantism of Catholicism So about 40% of Germany was Catholic, 60% was Protestant. And he was leading the charge to say we've got to get traces of Judaism out of Protestantism. The Institute's goal, and by the way, the most intellectual theologians, the leading preachers, the top ranks were all part of this Institute. The Institute's goal from its very inception was to purify Protestantism, the Bible, and especially Jesus. So they were looking at passages like Matthew that showed the lineage of Christ, and they're saying we have to delete that. We have to take that out. Christ was not Jewish. And any reference to Judaism that was positive, they were pulling it out of the Bible. Protestant Christianity was to be redefined as an Aryan religion with Jesus as the first man to battle the pernicious influence of the Jews so basically he was proving that Christ actually wasn't descended from the Jews that he actually was anti-semitic and he came to destroy the Jews but they overcame him and destroyed him Heschel's work which represents years of intensive archival research yields fruitful information that will help scholars of the Third Reich address the German Christian movement with the institute representing one major area of their efforts to realign the Christian churches to to one Germanic, Nazified church it is the same spirit of Constantine, the same spirit of Pope Victor the same intention that John Chrysostom had and that was to get Judaism out of the religion which is impossible, I'm going to just cut to the chase here because I want us to have time to, to have conversation um I was going to show you just in in, in, the, in the future how we're going to observe these holy days but go to go to Romans eleven. just some scriptures you can look at on your own time ezekiel forty five twenty one shows the Passover being observed in the future. Isaiah 66:21 to 23 shows the Sabbaths being observed in the future. Zechariah 14 shows the Feast of Tabernacles being observed in the future. Luke 22 shows that Christ will return to observe the Passover with us in the future. But I want to conclude with this, Romans 11. Because of this this hatred of the Jews And trying to create a new Christianity That has nothing to do with the Jews And so what we have today is a Christianity That is Greco-Roman But the true Christianity Its root is Hebraic In fact in Ephesians It says we're built upon the foundation Of the Apostles and the Prophets The Apostles and the Prophets Were Hebrews Christianity is a Hebrew religion And we are invited As Gentiles to come into the covenant. That God made with Abraham and that God made with Israel. Romans 11, verse 13. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am, Paul, an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. So this is Paul speaking to the Gentiles. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. So the Jews have rejected Christ, and, and Paul is saying, I wish that I could uh, save them. For if the casting away of them be the rest reconciling of the world. So because the Jews have been cast away, the Gentiles are being brought away, being brought in. So Paul is saying if the casting away of the Jews is the reconciling of the Gentiles, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches the foundation of our religion the root is hebraic it is a Hebrew root we can't get away from this if the root is holy so are the branches but if some of the branches are broken off and you being a wild olive tree as a Gentile are grafted in Gentiles are grafted into this hebraic covenant it's not it's not a different religion we can't just dispense the Hebrews and make up our own Greco-Roman religion because we don't like the Jews there is a root and that root is Abraham Isaac and Israel from that root are branches the natural branches the Jews and the Israelites have been broken off and the wild branches the Gentiles are being grafted into the root there's no new root the root is Hebraic if some of the branches the Jews are broken off and you being a wild olive tree are grafted in among them and with them partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree boast not against the branches we are in no position to boast against the Jews we are in no position to boast against the Israelites God has closed their eyes so that he can graft in the Gentiles but he says prophetically, he will open their eyes and they will be brought back in. But the root is Hebraic. Boast not against the branches. Notice this. But if you boast, you bear not the root. The root bears you. So what Constantine has done, what Anicetus did, what Victor did, what the Nazis did, What we do when we're celebrating Easter and making up this different religion and worshipping the sunrise, we're boasting against the root. We have to be humble. This is God's covenant. These are God's mo'adim. We are being invited in to this covenant. Let's not boast against the root. Let's honor the root. The root is Hebraic. And I apologize for taking a little longer than I meant to, but I just felt it's so important that we understand, where is this coming from? Why does the whole world agree on Easter? And, and, and we don't observe Passover. Well, with this historical context, I think we can see. And I think we see clearly in the first century, the faithful people of God observe the Moadim of God. And so we have a choice. Will we be faithful and keep God's appointments? Or are we going to run along with the world that is boasting against the root?